0: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. Now that we're firmly ensconced in the podcast era, I just wanted to mention that one of the podcasts I like as I kind of search around is by Rob Lowe. And the guy is just a natural at it. You know, most people are great at one thing. You're a great actor or actress. You're a great athlete. Uh, but the ability to just, you know, talk for an hour uh, by yourself with somebody else and have a great conversation is really something, and it reminded me of what I like doing about this podcast. Because you know, he had the other day, he had Daryl Hammond on, the uh, famous SNL comedian and impersonator, who I once interviewed. And it's just, um, it was raw. You know, you you can curse if you want. You don't have to hit a break. You don't have to worry about pacing. You say whatever's on your mind, and the other person says whatever is on his or her mind, and you just talk. And I think uh, what what attracts people is you get a real glimpse. You know, when these celebrities, take Rob Lowe, he goes on the Today Show or even some cable show. you you got a six-minute segment. you got to hit your two talking points. They put some video up, and then it's off to a commercial break. Well, podcasts are, you know, that you can breathe. You can actually talk and make jokes and reminisce and all of that. Now... I have to admit, because I have uh, had a couple of conversations with Rod Lowe, who I've met a couple of times, you know, I'm probably more attracted than the average person. But even when I sat down and talked to him, and this is a little known part of my career that I don't talk much about because there's not much to talk about, but I was once, I once had a very bit part uh, in a movie uh, called Knife Fight, uh, which Rod Lowe was one of the stars. And I was just, uh, you know, a friend of mine was producing it, and I came on and I, Had about I had like a 15 second part that I stretched into about 45 seconds of dialogue, playing a blogger. Uh, This was some years ago, Um, and and so uh, got a chance to you know watch the movie be made, and also when I talked to Rob. You know, I was, of course, wanted to know about Hollywood and his career and everything. And he wanted to know about what was going on in Washington and politics. He had a great curiosity about it. Anyway, those are some of the reasons I think he has a good podcast. Uh, Some news on cable news last night. I mentioned on the podcast yesterday and on Media Buzz over the weekend uh, that CNN has dumped Rick Santorum, the former presidential candidate, the former Republican senator from Pennsylvania, for making some pretty insulting remarks about Native Americans, and what I said and what I believe is, you know, Santorum has been with CNN for about four years, and it's kind of a shame because he's one of the few prominent Republican voices on that network, is if he just got on the air and said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, it came out wrong, I apologize, uh, I think he'd still be there. But instead it was like, well, I misspoke, but you know, no apology. So last night he was on Fox, he was on Sean Hannity's show. And uh, he wasn't quite as diplomatic as he wanted his st- is in his statement. Uh, he did say he gave CNN uh, credit for keeping him on as a contributor despite pressure to fire him. You know, because why? Because he's a conservative. But he, was, he found it disappointing that he was uh, uh, booted out of there. And then he, he doubled or tripled down on his original remarks. What I said was not at all disparaging uh, toward Native Americans. Uh, What I was talking about is the founding of the United States of America. So he just, you know, said nothing to see here, move along. And um, one of the things I'm concerned about is you get savage by telling the truth. And I told the truth here, Sam Term said. Uh, He said, the intolerance of the left is really the issue here and the cancel culture that is flowing from it. But again, if you make remarks that have offended an entire community, it's not cancel culture to say that you have to be accountable for that and go on the air, and then if you do end up losing your job over it, and I was not in favor of him losing his job, uh, you just blame the intolerance of the left. Also on Hannity's show, uh, I guess it may have even been part of this discussion, Hannity talked about Joy Reid, obviously somebody of very different persuasion, ideologically speaking, on MSNBC, and he revealed for the first time, reading this in MediaEye, that he had defended Joy Reid a few years ago when she was uh, under enormous fire for the discovery of a blog that she had kept like 10 years earlier that had some homophobic comments and other things that, you know, were just unacceptable, that she said were unacceptable. She originally said she'd been hacked. I don't think many people bought that explanation. Uh, But Hadney said, I don't believe in boycotts. I've never supported one. I never will. I don't want Bill Maher fired. In fact, I defended him. I didn't want him fired from ABC. That's in the politically uh, incorrect days. When Joy Reid was in trouble, Sean said, I was called by an NBC executive who said, your public comments played a big role in us being able to keep her, meaning her job. She wrote me a nice note. Now that's And Hannity goes on to say, you know, uh, now if you say something, you can't even revise and extend your remarks, apologize, explain in more detail what you meant. Nobody wants to hear it. And I'm sick of it, to be honest. And he has a point. And I think for him to go to bat for somebody who he doesn't doesn't agree with on anything, you know, whatever role he may or may not have played in Joy Reid keeping her job at MSNBC. And this is before she had a a show at 7 Eastern, you know, when she was a a lesser player at MSNBC. I just think is interesting. You know, I've got a column today on Fox. You got a sneak preview here yesterday. It was all about Beltway gridlock and how nothing is getting done. I mean, nothing is getting done. And you know, I write about how journalists get so caught up in process stories because you know, the leaders went to the White House, they met with the president, they had a session, the Gang of Eight, the Gang of Twelve, and they're making progress and they just have to narrow the, And and, 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 you know, 99 percent of the time Congress can't get anything done. And these stories, you march up the hill, you march down the hill. In the end, it all collapses. This reflects our polarized era. This reflects uh, the Republicans moving to the right and the Democrats moving to the left. Uh, Joe Biden obviously wants to get a couple of bipartisan achievements. And you look at the issue, uh, January 6th commission, infrastructure. They can't even agree on money to, you know, fix roads, bridges and tunnels and maybe put some, upgrade some broadband. Can't even agree on that. They're way far apart. Uh, Police reform. Uh, today, uh, I guess, is the one-year anniversary of the tragic murder of George Floyd. Talk about that in a moment. No police reform bill. Uh, so there's a headline in Politico. Time to quote. Time to move on. Infrastructure talks near collapse. And I think the media inadvertently, reporters are just doing their jobs, but you know, they, they generate a sense of hope. Well, you know, because you go interview, uh, so, uh, Senator so and so said, and Congresswoman so and so said, uh, she thinks that you know, there's some common ground here, and they could reach agreement. And then, you know, it all ends up collapsing. This is true not just in the Biden administration. It was true in the Trump administration. It was true in the Obama administration. It was true in the Clinton administration. It was true in the Bush administration. Congress just can't seem to agree on anything. The parties don't need power anymore. And, uh, you know, there's very few swing votes left. And so all this stuff ends up not getting done with which is why I believe, and I think this was true from the beginning, that Biden's going to end up pushing through another zillion-dollar infrastructure bill on reconciliation, a party-line vote. All Democrats, no Republicans, as they did with the first coronavirus relief bill. Uh, So, turning to the police reform bill, New York Times has a story saying, uh, I guess uh, today was the deadline, the deadline that President Biden had set. I mean, it wasn't an official deadline. It was a political deadline. He wanted a major police reform bill on his desk, by today, uh, and here we go, but advocates and lawmakers in both parties are optimistic about the possibility of reaching a compromise, hoping that police reform could offer a rare window for bipartisanship as the legislative process grinds to a halt on a range of other issues. Well, I do think there's some pressure on both parties to show they can do something on the issue of of urban violence and police reform. But, you know, when I read that advocates and lawmakers are optimistic, I discount it most of the time because there's so many things that can go wrong. It is hard to pass a bill through Congress to get both houses to agree. The George Floyd Memorial Policing Act, or whatever it's called, it's already passed the House. The question is whether it can pass the Senate. And the problem with the Senate, as you know, is we have a filibuster. Uh, And with a filibuster, you need 60 votes. Now, there are some things, like on budgets, where you can get around it. You know, Trump did it. They all do it. But police reform, you can't do that. So can they get 60 votes for anything on any subject? Uh, and here's, here, this underscores why. So it's already passed the House. Uh, a group of progressive lawmakers in the House, led by Ayanna Presley and Corey Bush, sent a letter out on Friday urging their colleagues in the Senate to support an end to qualified immunity. This is the big sticking point in any police reform bill. Um, this is... Um, the thing that's most difficult for Republicans and Democrats to agree on, beyond questions of police tactics and funding and all of that. Um, So qualified immunity means that if a police officer um, commits violence, roughs somebody up, shoots somebody, or otherwise does something that becomes uh, under scrutiny in the process of doing his or her job, that police officer can't be sued uh, because qualified immunity allows them to get uh, to evade the lawsuit by saying that, well, I was acting in good faith. The progressives the people like God Presley want to get rid of that. They want people who are arrested or families of those who are injured or killed to be able to sue individual police officers. And uh, Republicans are not very interested in that. But what... Um, What this letter from the House liberals says is if the Senate passes its own bill but doesn't end qualified immunity, they didn't quite say it, but they implied that they would not vote for it when, you know, legislation's got to go back to the House because you have to have one version if the Republicans don't go along with what the progressives want. And that means the whole thing would collapse in the 11th hour. And that's often where uh, bills collapse. You know, the House and Senate pass different versions. Then you have a conference committee. Then you know, suddenly it's, it's Christmas time or it's time to get out of town for summer recess. And the whole thing collapses. I'm not predicting that. I don't want that to happen. I think, you know, given all of the violence that we have been through, as well as the riots, uh, which, you know, the violence, the uh, setting a fire, a, a fire of police cars, the throwing of rocks, the injuries injury suffered by police officers defending cities like Portland and Seattle and many other cities. It is time for Congress to act, but I can't say I'm optimistic because that's what Capitol Hill does. Now, earlier today, I was on Fox's America's newsroom with a report about whether or not the coronavirus has been talked about and speculated for more than a year now, about a year and a half, originated in that Chinese lab in Wuhan. And most of the media, I mean, nearly all of the mainstream media have dismissed this whole notion as crazy town. It's just not even worth talking about. And I didn't really take it seriously either. I never really sort of homed in on it. Uh, But it seemed like, you know, it kind of got wrapped up with President Trump saying it was a possibility. And so the mainstream media say, well, if Trump says it's true, it can't be true. And with some Republicans saying it was a possibility. And so... um, When you have that situation and there's no hard evidence, and even today now, it's purely circumstantial evidence. I want to make that perfectly clear. But things are starting to change. Um, Here's one example. The Wall Street Journal on Sunday broke this story based on U.S. intelligence sources that three Chinese researchers at the lab in Wuhan were hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms in November of 2019, which happens to be just like a couple of weeks before the first reported case of coronavirus, uh, was confirmed. Now that's pretty suspicious. Um, And suddenly there's this re-examination. Now just to give you a sense of the, uh, the way this has gone down, just last February, Tom Cotton, another Republican who the media love to hate, came out and said something actually in retrospect pretty mild. He said, well, this idea of whether this, whether scientists inadvertently or otherwise allowed COVID-19 to escape from the Wuhan lab should be investigated. And the reason it should be investigated is because of China's history of dishonesty. Boom, couple of headlines. Washington Post, Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that was already debunked. New York Times, Senator Tom Cotton repeats fringe theory of coronavirus origins. But now you have more of this circumstantial evidence coming out. Now there were some exceptions. I may have touched on this yesterday. New York Magazine had a very big piece uh, back in January, exploring all of these questions. Not saying it was the Wuhan lab, but certainly exploring that question as opposed to this notion that it you know, went from a bat or some other animal and jumped uh, a species to the human species. National Review, Jim Garrity, I mentioned this yesterday in talking about his piece. Uh, had, had a story raising all kinds of questions back in April. And Nick Wade, Nicholas Wade, former New York Times science reporter, has this great online essay in which he says there's a lot of um, substance to the circumstantial evidence here. He said, here's his explanation. Most journalists lean left, And therefore, they automatically reject whatever Trump says. So if Trump says, hey, this is a possibility, and, you know, it was part of his when he called it the China virus, the Wuhan virus. So it sounded like, to those who didn't like this president, uh, an attempt to politicize the thing. Also, Nick Wade says, science reporters aren't skeptical of their sources' motives. They just kind of take what the scientists say and report it uh, without a great deal of checking or in, uh, individual skepticism, and that's not good. But now you've got Anthony Fauci, you know, the guy who many Americans consider the gold standard on this stuff and who many other Americans of the more conservative persuasion uh, think has been wrong a lot. He just told CBS that he is open to a thorough investigation of the laboratory scenario. Which early on, Fauci described this as unlikely. He never said it wasn't true. He never said it was a ridiculous conspiracy theory. He just said he thought the evidence pointed in other directions. He thought it was unlikely. Well, even he seems to be uh, walking back that position. Now, today, you've got a headline on the Washington Post fact checker column, which shows you how much uh, journalists are now starting to re-examine this theory that they completely and totally blew off. The headline is, How the Wuhan Lab Leak Theory Suddenly became credible. And so this is just a really interesting media story, whether it turns out to be true or not, when you have something that's just fringe, it's crazy, it's crazy town, it's Looney Tunes. uh, it can't even be discussed in polite company, we're not even going to give it airtime, we're not even going to give it any uh, ink in the paper, and then suddenly things change, evidence comes out, dribs and drabs, I don't know if this is ever going to be definitively proven, and suddenly you have the Washington Post Fact Checker saying, hey, this at least needs to be looked at as a credible theory. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. You know, there's a really, um, it's a soft feature, of course, uh, about President Biden in the Washington Post. It's about like what he does all day, you know, his daily routine. And while certainly you could say, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of, I mean, there were, actually, I do remember stories in both the Times and the Post about Donald Trump's day. It's just that it was delivered with an edge because Donald Trump's day was a lot of it was watching cable TV, calling up friends, um, repeating things he'd heard, the staff trying to talk him out of things. You know, it was a, it was a fascinating White House to cover, uh, very chaotic at times. So when you had those kinds of stories, those tended to be trying to prove the journalistic thesis that Trump didn't know what he was doing, that his staff had to rein him in, uh, that he watched too much TV and all of that. Well, obviously, Biden is a very different president, so there is just some interesting tidbits in here that I'm gonna share with you because it, it's interesting to know. You know, here's a guy who spent his whole life in politics. He's 78 years old. This is the third time he ran for president, and suddenly he's in the Oval Office. But he's a creature of habit, according to the Post. He's got his well-worn routines. He likes to have his orange Gatorade. I don't know why that flavor is different than the blue or anything else. He likes to have his chocolate cookies. I confess to that particular vice. Um, he is, anybody who knows Joe knows, he's a tactile politician. He loves to chat. He loves to talk. He loves to backslap. So Barack Obama had started this tradition of asking his staff to give him 10 representative letters each day of all of the people who write into the White House, which is obviously, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. So Biden's continued that tradition. Sometimes Obama would write them back. But what Biden does um, is that he has to meet with them. And there are examples in the piece of several people he's met with who are obviously stunned. They they got a call from the White House operator saying, uh, This letter, you figure, you know, it's lucky, you're lucky, you figure it's probably never even going to get to the president, that he wants to have a meeting with you. And I think that's his way of getting out of the bubble. So, what else? He gets up, uh, has an exercise routine. Uh, that includes uh, biking on both a traditional bike and a Peloton. I love this line. His current Peloton preferences are something of a state secret, however. West Wing aides would not even reveal if he had brought the interactive stationary bike with him to the White House. Well, we need an investigation of that. And it's very clear because people like Anita Dunn have on the record that the White House completely cooperated with this piece. Uh, unlike Trump an avid TV watcher and Fox News enthusiast and self-proclaimed master of TiVo, Biden is not a voracious consumer of TV, but when he's working out in the morning, he watches usually New Day on CNN or Morning Joe on MSNBC. I guess Fox and Friends not on the presidential viewing list, but, you know, probably gives him a good sense of what the day is shaping up, what the punditry is shaping up if he's watching those uh, two other morning shows. And then he gets, and this reminds me, um, you know, of a time when print mattered more than it seems to now, a hard copy of what's called the bulletin. It's just, it's a bunch of news clips that White House staff compiles. Uh, Includes local news, national news, TV transcripts, editorials, headlines from front page stories. And because Biden still really, really cares about Delaware, they also include in this news summary uh, stories from Delaware and Pennsylvania, uh, including from one in the Wilmington News Journal. Uh, Biden's preferred lunch is soup and a salad, usually a chopped salad with grilled chicken. Uh, he loves that Gatorade and Coke Zero. That's interesting because I'm really into Coke Zero. Um, no more basket of apples that Obama kept on the Oval Office desk. Instead, he's got saltwater taffy. and That saltwater taffy comes from Dolly's, which if you've ever been to Rehoboth Beach, which is where Biden has a beach house. Uh, it comes from a place called Dolly's, which is an absolute staple on the boardwalk. everybody walking around with saltwater taffy. So he gets that, I don't know, airlifted in on Air Force One from Rehoboth. Uh, his favorite cookies. Oh, because of COVID, each cookie has to be individually wrapped uh, with a gold White House seal, making them hot commodities among the staff. Uh, So that is interesting. And by the way, when they're having a casual conversation someone says, oh, I talked to so-and-so, Biden will often interrupt and say, you know what, I want to call him or I want to call her I want to hear from myself. Also he reads Apple News on his phone and he likes finding sort of oddball or off the beaten path or weird stories. Hey, did you know there's a Japanese woman who lived to be 119? So you know, in some ways he's the President of the United States, in other ways, you know, he's like your grandfather uh, skimming the news and talking about what he finds to be interesting. All right, this Belarus controversy, the intentional downing of the flight carrying the journalists is such a wild story that it's it's just hard to wrap my head around it. And there's a lot of facts that are just kind of hazy right now. But the one thing we can say with absolute certainty is that the authoritarian government of Belarus uh, went way beyond international norms and is paying a diplomatic price. For forcing an airliner, this is a commercial airliner, which was scheduled to land in the Lithuanian capital of Vilnius. But just before the landing, the plane made a U-turn. I'm sure you've heard about this. So many passengers thought, oh, you know, this is a big delay and, you know, typical air travel problem. But it ends up being diverted to Minsk, the capital of Belarus, because of one passenger whose name is Roman Protasevich. He is a prominent opposition journalist, been living in exile, He immediately knew what was going on. He was terrified uh, that he faced arrest. European leaders have already called on all the EU-based airlines to stop flying over Belarus and began the process of banning Belarusian airlines from using European airspace, basically isolating that country from Western Europe. The uh, strongman in Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, already facing uh, European sanctions for human rights violations, Uh, And the reason that he doesn't care and he's willing to do this with impunity is he has full support from Vladimir Putin. And so without Russia's support, you know, he wouldn't be able to get away with any of these tactics. In fact, he went a little further yesterday, tightening restrictions on dissent by signing new laws that banned, uh, according to the New York Times, online live streams from unauthorized protests. Now, Belarusian state uh, TV Uh, aired a report rejecting the idea that there were KGB agents on the plane. This is the Belarusian, you know, Secret Service still uses the old Soviet initials. And it said, oh, no, 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 nothing to see here. The three people on the plane who didn't move on from Minsk, because the rest of the people just wanted to get where they were going, right, to Lithuania, oh, you know, they just decided to stay. There was a Greek man who said, you know, I think I'll go sightseeing here. The pilot announced that he decided to land the plane in Minsk after a bomb threat. And that sounds like a cover story because there was no bomb discovered. It sounds like, as the New York Times puts it, a ruse to get the plane to land. Now, Protasevich, who co-founded an account on the social media app Telegram, he helped galvanize and coordinate mass protests against Lukashenko last year. So I don't know, when he's described as a journalist, it sounds to me like he's an activist. Maybe he's one of those people who kind of straddles both. Um, But there's already a video out of him, which clearly looks coerced, in which he says, I continue to cooperate with the investigation and I'm giving confessional testimony on charges of organizing mass unrest in the city of Minsk. So it may well be that he did this. I, it, you know, is it illegal in Belarus to organize a mass protest? Do they not even have that right? But he's obviously having to confess to it. And the next is he's going to be indicted. We're going to have another situation on our hands. Like Navalny uh, arrested when Russia, in Russia when he decided to voluntarily go back and face the music. Another dissident, you know, developed a worldwide following. But man, uh, when you get into dangerous tactics like down, forcing down a civilian airliner, that is pretty scary stuff. Hey, I want to just mention John Oliver of HBO. He did an incredible thing the other night. I thought it was really cool. Uh, it involved some deception. Uh, he used HBO's money to create a bogus product called a sexual wellness blanket. Well, you know, it's television. you got to be entertaining. And then he was able to um, get several local newscasts on different stations around the country to do these sort of sponsored placements where they kind of pretend it's news, but they get paid. So on his show last week tonight, um, they showed how they paid... Uh, Stations to conduct these interviews, these quote interviews about consumer products, and this is pretty widespread. There've been a lot of local news exposés about this, and for some reason, I guess because they need the money, local stations continue to, you know, mortgage their credibility by taking money to to flack these products and what are presented to the viewer as news, and they're not news. They're infomercials, and they should say that. So. Uh, Sometimes they do just enough to stay on the right side of the uh, FCC, but that doesn't mean they're not doing massive harm to their credibility, says John Oliver, because even when a sponsorship is, quote, properly disclosed, I'd argue, says Oliver, there are certain businesses uh, local stations should not be selling themselves out for, especially when it comes to medicine. A surprising number of segments on these shows are enthusiastic, uncritical showcases for expensive treatments or devices that are, to put it charitably, medically dubious. So, as an example, he played a clip from a couple years ago from uh, ABC4 in Utah, which promoted home use shockwave devices to treat erectile dysfunction and cellulite. Okay. So, um, HBO and Oliver create this um, product, a sexual wellness blanket. And, And John Oliver says, You might think viewers would be smart enough to approach anything on these shows with skepticism. But many of these stations also swap figures with their newsrooms and their sponsored content shows. And it's hard to know what's local news and what is paid promotion. So uh, ABC4 in Utah, that's a show called Good Things Utah. And the HBO uh, deception made it on to the show. The station's chief medical correspondent, Suray Chin, says, uh, and Oliver says, it seems striking. Chin didn't have any follow-ups on claims that we made about the veil you would hope a medical correspondent would immediately take issue with, such as that the blanket's design draws out the alkaline undercurrents of the vagina, and that the product was part of the field of magnetogenetics developed in Germany 80 years ago. The Venus veil is caught. Also got coverage on KVUE in Austin, Uh, and on Denver's mile-high living. So good for John Oliver for smoking these people out. By the way, just a quick note here. uh, Donald Trump sent out one of his uh, missives to journalists. He took issue. I mentioned this yesterday. The Washington Post had a piece saying, well, Trump's online traffic is drastically down. Well, yeah, because he has been banned from Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So here's Trump's response. What the Washington Post and other members of the fake news media don't report is that Joe Biden is of no interest to anybody. 21 million less people watched his joint address to Congress than watched mine. And by the way, he says, you know, this blog I have now, it's just a temporary way of getting my thoughts and ideas out to the public. The website is not a platform. He goes on. Also, Biden's ratings have killed the radical left fake news cable channels. MSNBC and CNN, says Trump, uh, have plummeted in the ratings. MSNBC sh- doesn't have a, MSNBC doesn't have a show in the top 10 of all cable news programs. CNN doesn't have a show in the top 100. This is all cable, and I'm not, I haven't fact checked this, but this is what the foreign president says. They should have embraced and endorsed Trump. Their ratings would have hit new highs. This is fascinating. If these stations, which obviously have a very liberal philosophy and hate everything Donald Trump stands for, if only they'd endorsed me, their numbers would be better. That's how businessman Trump looks at it. By the way, he says, I've been doing very limited media so the American public could see just how big a disaster the Biden administration has been. Now, is that a, a, a suggestion, an insinuation, a hint, a tease that he may be doing more media in the future? We shall see. But, you know, if you, it's kind of like the old days. It doesn't need to be on Twitter. If there's a story that's negative on Donald Trump, he will find it, he will hone in on it, he will write something. I think there's a little more vetting now of these things by the aids that he still has working for him and he will send off that zinger but the deal the difference is you can't just sort of click your mouse and instantly share it on facebook or twitter or instagram hey appreciate you listening um i'm no rob Lowe, but i try to do what i can on this podcast he's a little bit better, better looking guy uh nevertheless i hope you'll subscribe at apple itunes google podcast on your amazon device on amazon music and we'll see you tomorrow with more buzzes